Hello and welcome to the Autism in Real Life podcast. In each episode, you'll get practical strategies by taking a journey into the joys and challenges of life with autism. I'm your host, Ilya Walsh, and I'm an educator and the parent of two young adults, one of which is on the autism spectrum. Join me as I share my experience and the experiences of others so that we may see the unique gifts and talents of individuals on the autism spectrum fully recognized. Hello, everyone. This is Ilya with the Spectrum Strategy Group, and I welcome you today uh, to this episode. With me, I have Danya Jekyll, and I'm very happy to have uh, to have her on with me today. Um, she is the executive director of AANE, which you've heard me mention uh, many times, the Asperger Autism Network. I worked there uh, for a little over eight years. And, um, you know, I wanted to bring uh, Danya on. And as we chat a little bit, um, you'll see kind of what the catalyst was for this. But uh, I know, uh, Danya, <laughs> thank you so much for being with, uh, with me today. And if you could just just introduce yourself. I know I gave you a little high level, but um, but a little bit of background about yourself. Sure. Um, well, you already know my name. Um, <laughs> I am the uh, founding director of AANE, so I've been doing that for 25 years. Um, I am a social worker by training. Um, I uh, grew up in Massachusetts. I still live in Massachusetts. I guess I, I um, I'm don't like transitions that much. So, you know, I kind of stayed here. And um, I've worked in this field, you know, pretty much my whole life, starting when I was uh, 17, um, and a volunteer uh, for people with developmental disabilities. So this has really been, you know, a lifetime of, of this type of work. And just so you know, I know you know this, Ilya, but your guests might not, I am retiring. Um, I'm uh, retiring in October. I will be 70, so I will be moving on to other things. Um, and uh, so it's sort of the you know end of, of my career and uh, time to sort of leave the organization to you know younger minds. <laughs> well, first, I can't believe that you're 70, so that's like crazy. Um, and you know, I think it, it was kind of timely to ask you to come on because. Um, one of the things that I I hear often in speaking with other people is that there are just not enough resources um, for people out there who are look looking to learn more, um, connect with other people, find people who understand. Um, I actually had a comment from someone yesterday who said that um, the work that I was doing, they felt seen and they felt heard. And, you know, I attribute a lot of that to everything I learned working at A&E. And I think there's something about A&E that kind of has that ability to have people feel like they get it, right? We, we've always joked about that and said, oh, they call, they said, you get it, you get me. Um, so I want to kind of go back to what was the catalyst for starting this organization? Sure. Um, well, let me go back a little further, if I may. Mm -hmm. sure. I think the historical context is really important. Um, and I will have to say, you know, I've been working in this field now for 
you know, 50 years plus. And uh, the changes that I have seen are just enormous. It, it's really incredible. You know, sometimes I say, oh, why isn't this like this or this like that? You know, uh, you know, why can't we get more awareness or understanding, et cetera. But then when I look back and think, oh, when I first started this field and people were in institutions, uh, we have come actually a long, long way um, in terms of acceptance and understanding. So um, if, if you will allow me, um, I'll go back to when I was in high school, actually. Um, I was very fortunate. I was in a progressive high school. It was the, you know, the, the late 60s. And um, we had a program, which, you know, a lot of people do this now, but back then it was pretty radical, uh, where um, we went into, um, we did volunteer work. And the volunteer I, work I did was I went into a local institution, um, again, for people who uh, had developmental disabilities. And um, it was the Fernald School, to be more specific. Um, and um, they, uh, they had us volunteer with one-to-one uh, -one with individuals who were essentially institutionalized in that, in that, in that school. Um, school is, uh, I, I don't think it was really a school, it was an institution, <laughs> but they use the word school. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, and I was really lucky to have a supervisor who actually um, thought that we should see what the real institution looked like. And um, one day we went through some, uh, they took us, we were a small group um, of volunteers, and she took us through these locked doors and we saw actually the back wards of the uh, Fernald State School. And that was horrendous. Um, it was a moment I will absolutely never forget. Um, and uh, people were naked, they were tied to benches and people, they were being washed with a hose. And as I say, I will never forget that. And, you know, I come from a family that went through the Holocaust, you know, my, my, um, my parents and grandparents. Um, and to me, this was, you know, and I had heard about concentration camps, et cetera. And to me, um, we were treating people in Massachusetts in the 19, you know, 60s, you know, as badly as as inhumanely as we had treated as, you know, the Nazis had treated, um, you know, my family. And I just could not forget this. And this is what propelled me to go originally into, you know, helping people, uh, supporting people with developmental disabilities. I said, you know, we can't live in a society that this kind of thing is happening. So that was many years ago. And, you know, I then went to, you know, I went to college, I went to, and actually when I was in college, I also um, worked in, uh, volunteered at a, um, a, an institution. I went to UMass Amherst and I volunteered at an institution in Northampton um, for people with mental illness. And it was, the, it was the same kind of thing in that institution. I don't need to go into it. So that just confirmed sort of my belief that there had to be something radical done and, and you know, some movement here. So anyway, moving forward, um, I uh, eventually worked at Fernald. Um, this was a time that was uh, undergoing real uh, changes. Um, they were deinstitutionalizing and they, you know, were putting people out in group homes and uh, people with mental illness in the street, unfortunately. Um, and uh, so it sort of pertains to your question about why there are not enough resources. I think that 
people did not understand the amount number of resources. You know, when you have people living in the community, it is not cheaper. Uh, you really do have to have the resources to support them. And I think the state did not realize the cost of this. And um, I think that's one of the continuing legacies of that time that people were um, deinstitutionalized without the appropriate understanding of the resources they would need to live in the community. So anyway, in terms of why I got into this, um, I did work at Fernald. I lived in Mexico for a while. I you know, did some other things with my life. Um, and then um, I got a job at uh, directing a family support program in a small uh, organization in Massachusetts. And um, one of the things I did in family support is I ran groups for parents who had children with autism. And at that point, autism was really, uh, you know, uh, the definition of autism or folks with autism really had pretty significant challenges, um, you know, in terms of being verbal or, uh, and um, things like that. And these parents are really struggling. And what happened is that there would be parents who would come to these uh, groups because they had at that point a diagnosis of PDD and OS or sort of mild autism or some strange diagnosis like that. Um, and they would come to the group, but they did not feel like they belonged because the other parents were talking about how hard it was like to even go to the supermarket. And these families, well, their children were, you know, their children were in school usually, um, you know, and they were dealing with very, very different issues. So it sort of became apparent that there was another group of people out there who were um, not identified uh, with no resources. They had no resources. They didn't know where to turn. They really weren't sure what was going on. Um, and uh, because they had, um, their kids were quite bright, very often very bright, um, you know, they, they didn't, you know, but unable to do some of the just basic things. They they just, this was very, very confusing. And it was at the time, it was in the, you know, mid 50, mid uh, 1990s, that um, the word Asperger's first sort of appeared. And um, when we saw that, um, I got together with a few people, including uh, a psychiatrist in the area, Dr. Rosen, and um, uh, Gail Kastorf, who ran another support center. And we had our first conference for people on the spectrum uh, with Asperger's. It was then with Asperger's. And we thought it would, we didn't even have a mailing list. We didn't think it would be filled. And it was filled within, you know, within a week it was filled with no mailing list. And then I had parents come to me and they were crying and they were saying, this is the first time there's had been anything for my child. Um, and I can't get in, you know, your auditorium's filled, you know, I can't get in. And actually the day of, we had a number of people sitting on the staircase because um, uh, they wanted to get into the conference. So it was very, very clear that there was a huge need, a uh, number of people um, who had no services, no resources, nobody to turn to, no community. And that's essentially how we started AE, because at the end of that conference, um, actually, we said, if anyone wants to start an association, you know, um, you know, stay here and we'll see what we can do. Uh, everybody in the audience stayed 100%. And that's when we started the association. And I was very lucky and fortunate to be asked to 
then um, take on the responsibility of building an organization. So that was a very long answer to a short <laughs> question, but that's sort of the story of how I started. No, I mean, I don't, I, I knew it was a short question, but I knew it was a deep answer. And I think for people who, you know, I know A&E is um, national and, and even in it, inter, international in some ways. Um, but, you know, people who are looking to find that same community, I mean, I think it's, it's inspiring to know that just a few people said, no, we need to get together and we're noticing something and we need to do something. And I think now with technology and social media, um, we can do that a little bit easier. I mean, you did that without even, right? No one was checking a Facebook page and no one was checking a website. It was, I'm going to stay and um, write my name down on a list and please call me. And, you know, having worked uh, at A&E 25 years later, I know things have been remote now, but there were still people who wanted to wait and wait on the waiting list. And there would be people who show up at the door for the conferences um, so it still shows how big of a need uh, there still is for connection and for information. Um, so where's the organization now? 25 years later, you started with just a few people back 25 years ago. Where's, where is AANE now? Um, so uh, for, I w- want to comment first on something you said, and that's about technology. Because mm-hmm. I think technology has just changed the organization tremendously. And you're completely right. At the beginning, you know, um, there were phone calls and people left phone messages and you mm-hmm. called them back. And, and, you know, nowadays, uh, communication, the way people communicate is so different. The way they find A&E is so different. You know, it, it's, it's social media, it's, it's um, other things. So that, you know, times have changed tremendously. Um, that being said, we have grown, you know, essentially from this grassroots, uh, you know, nothing. And it was me working part time. And when I first started, I said, oh, yeah, I can do this in five hours. I'll do my other job <laughs> as director of family support. And this is, you know, there's so few people we can do this in five hours. And I set up the phone and that was sort of the end of the five hours. Um, <laughs> because once the phone was set up, it's just started to grow. And I will have to say, you know, we've seen, um, you know, slow growth and we've seen faster growth. And when things are in the media, you know, when there is, for example, the movie Adam came out or, you know, when there has been a TV show or anything like that, um, the numbers just climb. So the media also has, you know, as maybe even though they perhaps misrepresent a little bit what, what you know, <laughs> autism and, you know, back then Asperger's was really like. Um, you know, it, it did, uh, you know, people sort of became aware of it. So it, it did increase awareness. So we are now a fairly large organization. We are uh, national. And as you said, Ilya, we also there are people from all over the world who join us. And, you know, it's, um, you know, we, we like to create community, a place that people can feel comfortable um, you know, friendship is sometimes tough for our folks. So we hope that, you know, we can, um, uh, help on that regard. So we do serve, um, we directly have supports for adults who are on the spectrum, uh, mostly with sort of an Asperger type of profile. Um, we have one-to-one supports and we have group supports for adults. We have supports for the parents and, siblings and friends of adults and partners, especially for partners of adults. 
And then for children, we actually do not have direct service for children because children are in school and there's actually quite a bit out there, at least again, um, you know, more than there used to be uh, for children. So for uh, children, we actually work with parents and teachers and try to help them in terms of the best parenting style, um, understanding what this is all about, you know, um, you know, teachers how to uh, form a classroom that's really uh, accessible um, so people on the spectrum can have success in a classroom. So um, again, we work directly with adults um, and then we work with parents of children of all ages. And there are some specialties we have at the organization that we feel are don't exist anywhere else. Uh, so ex for example, um, we work closely, uh, we have a, um, a gay, men, gay autistic men's uh, group. I think it's probably one of the only ones in the country, maybe in the world. Uh, we do a lot with um, uh, partners uh, who are on the spectrum. Um, we have a whole institute that's dedicated to working with partners. Uh, we work with people who um, are gender non-conforming or trans, um, and that's sort of something that's come up recently. And I think we are actually best known for working with women. And we have done that from the beginning. Um, we probably had one of the first uh, sort of conferences for women um, years and years ago. And so we have uh, consciously made a decision um, to acknowledge that there are women on the spectrum. They may look a little bit different from the, the males, but they are there. And right now we have, uh, in terms of people coming to the organization, it's almost 50-50 in terms of men and women. So we know that women are out there, they're, they're hidden, you know, they, they camouflage much better and uh, but we feel like we want to provide uh, supports and uh, services, whatever they need um, for that particular group community. Yeah. Yeah. And I know um, one of the things is uh, we, I've had several women on the podcast as well. And one of them was uh, Becca Laurie Hector. And I know she was a, a keynote for one of your conferences. And I remember when I was speaking with her about speaking for AANE, the funny thing is she said, oh my gosh, I would love to do that. I'm so honored you would ask me because uh, the way she kind of realized she was on spectrum herself was by reaching out and kind of doing some, you know, searches online. And she actually called A&E and was saying, you know, I'm resonating with what I'm reading on your site. And someone talked to her uh, in adult services and helped her, you know, just kind of listened and helped her find the resources. And then she was able to kind of move from there. And now she's a speaker and she's a podcaster and a blog, you know, you know, she blogs and she's a, a consultant. So um, it's it's super interesting. And, and I, I, I've heard that a few times. Many people have taken the Neurodiverse uh, Couples Institute that you offer training for clinicians. Uh, so so really, it's sort of like the tentacles are out there and people are finding are finding A&E. Um, and you, you've talked a little bit about how A&E is different. Um, and so thank you for that. Um, I also think what's interesting is people can go to A&E if, um, if they're not even, they don't need the diagnosis, they don't need the piece of paper, right? Absolutely. Um, we really don't care what your official diagnosis is or not having a diagnosis or you might have gone on the, you know, somebody might have gone on to 
a website and taken the, you know, the Aspie quiz or the autism quiz and said, oh, you know, I scored really high. Maybe this is me. So absolutely. If you feel like our services or supports are going to help you, um, you're, well, you're welcome to come in. We are really a non-medical model, very much so, so that, you know, we, we, um, we don't ask that kind of a question. Um, I also want to sort of piggyback on something that you said, Ilya. Um, another reason why we're unique, I think. Um, so first of all, from the beginning on our first board, so this is 25 years ago, you know, we had people with Asperger's. Uh, again, I'm using that term because we were the Asperger's Association of New England when we first started. Um, now I know that term Asperger's is sort of um, not used anymore. Uh, but we still feel like it defines uh, somewhat of a, a particular profile within the autism spectrum, within the autism community. So um, we, uh, so in our governance, on our board, our committees, whatever, it is, you know, extremely important that we have uh, representation um, in the governance. Um, uh, we have representation on the staff, not representation, uh, many of our staff members, um, and we really um, go out of our way to make sure that, you know, we have staff who are neurodiverse, who are on the spectrum um, at all levels. This is not just at a lower level, at all levels of the organization. Um, so that we are, you know, a very diverse, uh, neurodiverse organization in any way that you can think of. Um, and I think that's really important. It's not us and them, it's we are in this together to, so, you know, to do what needs to be done to um, enable people to, you know, have lives that are successful. Yeah, and I think that's something in speaking with adults, having worked in adult services, as well as doing the, the work that I'm doing now with the podcast, um, adults feel like they are not listened to, um, they're not represented. Um, I've had some you know, heated conversations because someone felt that I was, oh, you're just another one of those people who are, you know, trying to tell us what to do or, um, you know, not not including us in the conversation. And we had a really great conversation, uh, he and I, about how I did try to do that. And then he kind of looked at all the people that I've worked with and the people that I've talked, plus my own personal history. And he went, oh, my goodness, that's so rare, like, wow. And then I, you know, I again refer to A&E because that's another organization that I know um, is, is doing the same thing. And I think uh, it's important to have that voice everywhere. And, and you know, your organization does that. Um, and I think it's super important, which is why a lot of people are like, well, why don't you work with kids? And I think it's um, because, you know, A&E, you know, th there are resources out there for kids and, and that's a, it's a different, uh, it's a different place, I think. But of course, for families and for educators looking for resources, they can always, of course, um, go to, to your organization as well. But I think that is a, a pretty unique uh, space. And I do tell people that there are groups, you know, everything's online right now. So which makes it really accessible for people everywhere. Um, but you'd started online stuff, you know, of many years ago. So I think uh, you, you kind of were ahead of the curve on that a little bit. Yeah, I, I think we were really lucky because um, we had realized that there were people all over the, the U.S. and other places who really had no access, uh, especially adults and parents of adults, who had no access to any type of support. 
And so uh, we had started uh, Zoom. I mean, we already knew Zoom when COVID came. We had started Zoom uh, meetings, um, you know, a few years before um, the COVID was around. And I will have to say, you know, I was skeptical. Um, I, you know, I run a group for um, adults, older adults, um, you know, up to my oldest, the oldest adult in the group is 87. And wow. um, I've been doing that for, you know, this is a group that's been going for uh, 20 years. Uh, not all the same people, of course. Um, we've lost a few people and there have been some, you know, people have started to work or whatever. But um, I, I'm sort of somebody said, okay, you know, this is sort of the traditional way everybody gets together and you can you see the person you're in the same room. And so uh, as an organization, when we decided to do online groups uh, through Zoom, um, support groups, I said, this is never going to work. You know, no way. Uh, people need to be together. But in reality, you know, um, Stephanie Liu, actually one of our uh, long-term staff members, started, I think, the first one. And um, one day I sort of peeked in and looked over her shoulder and uh, to see what the group was like. And um, they were, it was an incredible group. I mean, they were talking about things that were important, that mattered to them. They seemed like a cohesive group. They supported each other. And, you know, my mind was changed. And mm -hmm. I then saw that, yes, you know, you don't have to be in person to have a supportive uh, group. And um, so we had continued with, you know, online groups and, uh, and, and in-person groups at that point. Mm -hmm. And then when COVID hit, we were very ready to pivot. And we did put all of our groups for adults, for parents, um, our coaching services, everything went virtual. And I think we were actually very lucky that we had had that initial experience pre-COVID. Uh, and that made it much easier for us to put everything online. Yeah, no, definitely. I think, um, and, and I have seen the list of different groups that are offered all different times for all different sort of subset of people that might be interested as well as, you know, more general. Um, so I always encourage people to go look and see if there's something that would work for them in that list because there's so much. And you're, you're also still doing online events as well. Absolutely. And I think one of the things we've seen is a lot of people, especially adults on the spectrum, like to connect via an interest that they have, a passion that they have, whether it's science uh, or particular, you know, dinosaur science. I mean, you, you name it, trains. Um, so we um, very often we build interest groups, uh, hiking, for example, another one. We int uh, build interest groups around um, various, you know, focus areas. So that when people come on, you know, that's what they can talk about. They can talk about insects or whatever they enjoy talking about. And that creates the relationship. Um, and I think for some people, this is easier than, let's say, going on a support group where you might be expected to talk about your feelings or what happened. Although we know that, you know, um, that's not necessarily what happens in our support groups. But, you know, talking about whales or whatever, sometimes it's easier for people. And that's how they make connections. Yeah, no. And I, and uh, so are you still doing those interest groups? And I know pizza and game night can't be a pizza and game night <laughs> when you can't be in the same space together. But have you replaced that with something oh, else? Oh, yeah. Um, we do have uh, online game night. <laughs> we okay. have Dungeons and Dragons. We have music. We have uh, science and technology group. We have book groups. 
Um, I think it's good to, you know, take a look at what we have. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's really varied. I will have to say they, um, one of the issues is they fill up very fast. Yeah. And we have heard that, um, you know, we don't quite have the capacity. I mean, if we could, we would, if we, you know, if we ever found the money, <laughs> it, it's just really a matter of being able to, you know, finance them. Um, you know, unlike other organizations, I think uh, we do not, um, we have some money from the state for our coaching program, but we really rely very heavily on uh, donations from people within our community or outside of our community. Um, so that it is always a matter of how, you know, what can we do with the resources and the money that we have? And, you know, we found during COVID, you know, the uh, people are desperate um, for connection. Uh, you know, this loneliness is really taking a toll, I think, on everybody. And um, we have not really, um, you know, we're, we're, we're at capacity right now. And um, we would like to have more groups, but um, maybe in the future, you know, I'm hopeful that that will happen in the future. We can, we can grow. Right. And I think, um, you know, that that has always been historically an, uh, the case, because I think there are so many, uh, there are not many resources out there. And so when people find, um, you know, that kind of connection, or at least willing to try, uh, I think, yeah, they fill up really fast. But but definitely, I will put that information so people can find you um, and be able to connect and and see if there's uh, something that they can fit into. And you're still doing all your conferences online as well. I know it's it seems to be pared down a little bit, though. Um, I actually would probably not say that. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, we do have uh, five conferences a year. Um, and, um, you know, one of the hardest things uh, for adults, young adults, and for families is that transition uh, from childhood, from being in school to adulthood, whatever comes afterwards, you know, either, you know, whether it's um, a post high school program or, uh, you know, college or work or whatever, um, that, that's a really difficult time. And, um, you know, many adults want to move out of their house and how are they going to do it? How are they going to get a job that's actually a, a, a wage that they can live on, a living wage? Um, so, uh, there are a number of programs, of course, um, available for people, um, uh, while they're sort of trying to figure this out and our conference in the winter, the one that's, for example, going on right now, it's all virtual, um, pre-recorded virtual, but it really helps people understand what is available for this transition to adulthood. And that's one of our most, um, popular conferences because, you know, it does, you know, allow um, people to sort of get that information. Uh, this summer, uh, we, we always try to do something in a summer conference that's a little bit more innovative. This summer, we're doing something on how people, autistic people are, are viewed in the um, movies and, uh, you know, uh, series, video series and movies. And we have some really interesting uh, people who are going to be part of that conference. And that's going to be a really interesting discussion, I think. So we try to do, you know, sort of more cutting edge and, and things that we know will be helpful and interesting to, you know, the broader community. Yeah. And I, I know that um, the the winter conference that offers those transition um services types you know sort of informational um is is a 
full of information. And I know while uh, much of it is Massachusetts specific, um, it, the content in there, a lot of it is, okay, maybe the particular agency doesn't exist in your state, but um, I think that the content that's there helps to kind of create that catalyst of asking the questions and trying to figure things out and then maybe making that connection in the state that you're that you're in. But you're also a little bit in New York, too. Right. Yeah. So that's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. This year, actually, we expanded that conference. So it used mm-hmm. to be Massachusetts based. Now there's uh, one set of uh, sort of. Um, I don't even know what you call them, workshops Mm -hmm. for Massachusetts and a second set for New York. So we sort of did the whole thing for New York. So if there is anyone uh, listening um, from New York, uh, absolutely try to take advantage of it because this is really helpful information. And, you know, when you start to get into the adult service system, the state system, um, there's a whole new language. It's very complicated and it's sort of split up. So housing might be one or agency and uh, support another. And then there's the vocational, a third. It's, it's, it's very, very confusing. And even for me, I mean, as you know, as I've just said, I've been in <laughs> doing this for 25 years and it's still confusing to me who does what. Um, right. So this is, you know, this is a whole new, you know, it's like, a whole new chapter and a whole, all this information that you have to learn. And many of our people, our families and our adults, you know, they um, have this information, they listen once and they go year after year because it takes that long to sort of understand and incorporate all these, this information into your, into your head, you know? Um, Yeah. And you can only focus on so many things at one time. That's something that I emphasize a lot with um, families and, and with adults as well is, you know, you can think about all of those things and, and it is very overwhelming, but we can only focus on a, one or two things at any given time and kind of know that there might be other things in the wings that we need to think about in the future, but what can we tackle right now and which ones are most pressing, regardless of where, you know, what stage um, your child or you are at. And yeah, so so the, that kind of go, knowing that it's there to come back to and re-listen. Um, and of course, things are always changing, right? And I, and I think the complexity, I don't think is unique to any one particular state. I think it's every state. Okay, I just want to reiterate what Ilya said, because it's such an important point. Um, You know, when you're facing things, uh, sometimes it's absolutely overwhelming. You don't know where to turn first. And, you know, do I do, you know, housing? Do I do my job? Do I do a relationship? How do I date? All these things, you know, just sort of overwhelm you. So it, it is a very, very good idea to pick one thing and concentrate on that. Uh, because otherwise you won't be able to do anything. You'll be completely paralyzed. So, you know, you pick one thing and you work on that. And then when that's sort of done or, you know, you feel like, okay, um, then you can move on to the next thing. But, you know, I, I would never recommend, you know, uh, trying to sort of do everything at once. So you, you won't get anywhere. Right. And I think that goes back. I think I've, I've said this in the past, but apparently multitasking really isn't a, isn't a strong suit for, for humans. Um, we can try, but, but, but we don't always succeed um, in all of the things. So kind of narrowing that focus, I think, is really helpful. Right. And I think one other thing, just in this topic, because it's such an important one, um, you know, the more the stuff you have to do, the more your anxiety is going to build up, uh, you know, in terms of oh my God, I can't do this. What am I, you know, so that anxiety is just uh, also can overwhelm people, 
you know, whether you're on the spectrum or not, you know. So, um, but especially for people who, you know, are autistic, it, anxiety is, is something that, um, you know, it, it just really um, can interfere with, with life quite a bit. So that's another reason just sort of to pick one thing. It, it will make you much less anxious. Right. And I want to, you know, kind of just focusing on that anxiety piece. I've had um, several conversations um, in the podcast about that topic and finding resources for yourself. You know, again, uh, if if you're having trouble kind of figuring out where to find some of those resources, again, A&E has, um, you know, people and resources even right online where you can get um, connected to other people to help kind of manage um, that anxiety and maybe find support in a variety of different ways. So um, I will I will put links to all of that stuff as well. Yeah, thank you, Ilya. Yes, anxiety is something that we see as um, uh, really getting in the way of people uh, being able to sort of enjoy life and find a life that suits them. Uh, so yes, find help if that's something that's really getting in your way. Yeah. So speaking of, as we kind of um, think about the future of A&E, what about, what about yourself? Where, where do you, you said you're ending your career, but I, I have trouble knowing you for all these years thinking that you're, you're just going to like not do anything now. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I haven't really had time to figure out what I'm going to do. I know if I was a, a real good planner, you know, I'd have something in place. Um, but I, I will have to say, I, um, you know, in addition to being sort of a social worker, I am also a fiber artist. And um, I do a lot with uh, fabric painting and quilting. And um, it's a, a real pleasure of mine. It's something I, I'm passionate about. And you're so, really good at, by the way. <laughs> so I do, at a minimum, I hope to um, have time for that. And mm -hmm. I'm looking forward. And then, um, you know, I do not have grandchildren right now, but there is one expected. So oh, um, right uh, two weeks before I retire. So that's another <laughs> personal thing that, you know, is sort of on the horizon for me. But awesome. you're right, Ilya, it's hard to imagine just sitting still. I'm not somebody to sit still. And um, I have so many ideas in my head. I just have to you know, sort through them. Right. And, th and those uh, that that idea generation has been um, part of what has propelled A&E to where it is. So uh, I kind of feel like, you know, you're still going to be hanging around. <laughs> well, who knows? <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think it's really, if I can just say, I think one of the things I, I hope is that, you know, as uh, Brenda Dater is going to be taking over the organization, she's the associate director. And, you know, I see sort of innovative programs, um, creative programming, you know, it comes from the community, it comes from the staff, as just really an absolutely vital thing. You know, we really have to keep thinking about what this is and, you know, how to respond and how to support people. And that creativity and innovation, I think, is just is absolutely vital to having a, a strong and, you know, vibrant organization. I agree. Well, I will um, definitely post all of the ways to find A&E. And I wish you a lot of luck, Danya. But I, like I said, I'm pretty sure um, we'll be, you know, connected again uh, in the future. But thank you so much for being with me today. Oh, thank you, Ilya. I really appreciated it. Uh, you giving me this opportunity and it was a pleasure. Great. All right. We'll take care. Yeah. Bye. Thanks for listening to Autism in Real Life. 
this is Elia Walsh, and if you like the show, please hit subscribe so you can get notified each time a new episode is released. I also offer training, consultations, and parent coaching, and would love to help you in any way that I can. You can check out my offerings at thespectrumstrategy.com, and when you join my email list, you can get a code to receive a discount off of an online class or a coaching session. Looking forward to hearing from you. Take care and see you next time.